Hello, you are listening to Deeply Curious. My name is Cody Jensen, and joining me in our New York City studio apartment is Sarah Jensen, my wife. Hello. In this episode, we are going to be diving in to the last book ever written by Kurt Vonnegut. Yes. Um, it is called A Man Without a Country, and if you've been keeping up with us, the Kardashians, um, we, <laughs> I, a few episodes ago, we talked about my ex- existential crisis that uh, which is ongoing yes just so everyone knows <laughs> um and i i feel like i have maybe found not answers mm-hmm. but language to mm-hmm. put to my feelings which is helping me you know uh, i move don't know forward. move forward um also just be reading some some books and some things and um doing some searching of the soul (laughs) and you know finding things um are you feeling better about yourself i think so sounds confident yeah (laughs) i think i'm feeling better uh i I feel like i guess maybe it's it's kind of like that I have not found how to get out of the pool, mm-hmm. but I have figured out how to wade in the pool. Okay. So it's like I'm not sinking, but I I haven't like figured out which how to specifically like get out or even or even if I'm supposed to get out per se. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's not about getting out; it's about learning how to swim. Very philosophical of you. Well, that's my new, you know, that's part of my uh, existential crisis is that, you know. It's your new identity. Maybe I'm supposed to be a philosopher. (laughs) Then it's like. Okay. Every uh, every day or so, it's like, well, maybe I'm supposed to be this. Yeah, the other day you tried to tell me that you think you're supposed to be a person who writes books. (laughs) Well, I didn't say I I thought I was supposed to be a person who writes books. I just thought Uh, it would be easier if I was a writer. That is so far from the truth, though. If you were an actual writer, you would understand that it's not easier if you're a writer. Well, it's mostly just thinking about all of these opinions, thoughts, observations, all these things, trying to figure out, okay, I have all of this. I have this like uh, righteous anger about these certain things. How do I best present this to the world through, you know, whatever art mediums Mm -hmm. and... You know, and you think writing a book is better than making a documentary, uh, which I think you don't actually believe that. <laughs> I think I believe that right now. I don't think I know. Do. I'm not saying that I can write a better book than no. I can write a better or make a better documentary. I'm just, you know, I don't think it's a better format. And I don't think you think that either. I disagree. I just think I just think you're confused. Well, yes. <laughs> But I still disagree in my confusion. (laughs) Well, just trust me. (laughs) (laughs) But before we fully jump into the conversation, just want to say a huge thank you to our patrons, our uh, Jensen AV Club members. Um, That is over at JensenAV.club. The link is also in the description uh, or the show notes. Um, So Patreon um, is a way for um, basically for us to continue to make the art um, to make these podcasts, to make our videos without having to overly worry about selling and creating art that sells. And we can just create art that matters. And we do that through partnering with people just like you that can 
that want to contribute financially if, if you want to, and also people who uh, want uh, to contribute financially while receiving exclusive perks um, and deeper access to um, things that we are doing and the I mean, whether you may, you can even uh, schedule one-on-one coaching sessions with either one of us. Um, and there are uh, levels all the way in between um, there as well. Um, so if you want to check out the Jensen AV Club and uh, see what it's uh, what you can get or just see what it's like to be a member of the Jensen AV Club, to become a patron, if you will, um, you can do that by going to jensenav.club. And I want to say that this podcast, this particular episode, is produced by Karen Carmen, Greg and Christy Jensen, and Christian B. Schmidt. Those are all members of the Jensen AV Club that um, are either an associate producer level or a producer level. And one of the perks of that is you get actual credit on the show, as you just Shout heard. Out. That uh, Your name here. <laughs> so. Thank you, guys. Yes, definitely. Um, so back to the convo. Mm-hmm. I... Uh, I feel like I'm waiting in the deep end, mm-hmm. um, trying to figure out life, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, I've also, along besides reading A Man Without a Country by Kurt Vonnegut, I've also been reading a, um, a book about the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I feel like we're going to talk about that one probably later, too, so I don't want to like... Yeah, I don't think we should talk about it too much, because... Yeah. Uh, cause I don't want to spoiler alert. Um, yeah. but I do feel like that book is also helping me figure out exactly where I am in this process. Um, but to stick with the topic of this podcast, um, so I read a man without a country. It's an essay book by Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut is a prolific author of, I don't know, like 15 different novels. He's mainly a nonfiction or he's mainly a fiction uh, sci-fi um, writer and in A Man Without a Country he actually um, uh, throws some shade and doesn't like being called a sci-fi writer um, but you know what I find really this is just a side note about how we organize our bookstores because <laughs> he's a sci-fi writer but he's in fiction not sci-fi maybe but, that's maybe that's changed over the years maybe he was thrown into sci-fi but now the, I the think it might have something is. more to do with the fact that he's a classic author, maybe. I don't really know. Don't I know. just find it fascinating how they decide to genre books. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, moral of this story is I read A Man Without a Country, and I can't stop talking about it. And so I figured yeah. I might as well record it. Yeah. <laughs> might as well. So... Uh, like I said, A Man Without a Country is an essay book. Um, it is a, a very short book. I think it's only 170 pages. Very short read. Um, it is a collection of essays by the author, Kurt Vonnegut. It is, um, some of the essays are things that he had already previously published as um, prefaces of his previous novels or things that he, you know, had already said and like kind of was already out there in the ether, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of it is brand new material. It was all brand new to me because this is the very first thing I've ever read of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, my lovely wife um, would like for me to point out that I had no idea maybe even who Kurt Vonnegut was until yeah. um, maybe a month ago. Um, mm-hmm. And she said, I really think you'd love Kurt Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. And then I read Kurt Vonnegut. And then guess what? I really love and Kurt Vonnegut. And now he thinks he's better than me. <laughs> that, 
That is so far from the truth. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's fine. I, I mean, just have some also, feelings about how you read A Man Without a Country because I told you to read Kurt Vonnegut mm-hmm. and you picked that one. And now you're just being so, I can't believe you haven't read, you need to read this book. I can't believe you haven't read this yet. I want to talk about it. Blah, blah, blah. blah. It's just driving me crazy because that's not the point. <laughs> what uh, please please uh dive deeper what is not the point um i really can't dive deeper i don't think because i don't really know why i feel this way about it <laughs> except that i if we're gonna i'm gonna mention the enneagram again the person that whatever i am a four on the enneagram and i don't like feeling like a not like I'm not unique and this being so passionate about a book is my thing, not your thing. And I feel kind of attacked by it, I think. <laughs> so you feel like by me loving a book, I'm stealing part of your personality. I mean, or it's part illogical. Of your, part, of, part of your identity. It's illogical, but yes. <laughs> because but I think because it's, your it's unique because... gifting in life is loving books. Yeah, uh, and so well, anybody else who loves books is still in part of your personality or no, part of your identity. No, it's just you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it just—it probably has more to do with the fact that I've literally been like telling you to read these things for our whole relationship. Like I've been trying to get you to be a reader forever, mm-hmm. and you are—you have become more of a reader. Mm-hmm. But like, there are still some things that I tell you you should read this because I think you'd love it that you don't read, and then the one time you do it you're like throwing it back in my face and it's just kind of i just don't know how to deal with these emotions that i'm having (laughs) okay well i only take issue with one thing you said i don't see how i'm throwing it back in your face i mean you're being me about this book well and it just makes me feel uneasy because i've been telling you for 10 years Mm -hmm. to read books and now you're like, I can't, you need to read this book. I can't believe you. I want to talk about this book. I'm like, how many times have I said that to you? I want to talk with somebody about this book and you don't read it. You just choose not to read the book that I want to talk about. It's but, just, I just, I can't really explain it. I don't, I can't really articulate it. I just have these feelings and it's bothering me. <laughs> but that's also just like a sweet irony. Like you tell me. Like, I've been telling you for this long that you should do this because I think you'd love this. Then I do it, and now you have mixed reviews about me actually no, loving it. No, I think it. it's just because of the way... It's, I don't have mixed reviews about you loving it. It's just, like, the way that you are... Uh, Enthusiastic about it? Toward me, yeah. <laughs> I told you, I can't really because articulate I... it, except that it's just, it, it was such a immediate uh opposite i guess and it's i don't know (laughs) i can't articulate it i'm not even saying if it's right or wrong i don't even know what it is well you have touched me and i'm pretty sure i have touched you okay maybe it's just a little bit of self-righteous anger Mm. because i've been telling you for so long to be a reader and then literally the one book that you read at my suggestion you become so enthusiastic about it and sort of not critical, not critical isn't the word, but like 
just like you need to drop everything you're doing and read this book so that I can talk about it is, you know what I mean? Well, that definitely has not happened. I've just talked about it a lot, which may no, make, this, make you feel no, that I'm telling you that. You did tell me that. After you finished reading it, you said, I need you to read this right now so we can talk about it. Well, that's just enthusiasm. I know, but what I'm saying is couple that with the 10 years of me trying to get you to read. You know what I mean? And then you just turn around and do it to me. It's like my own monster I created. So you're upset because I gave you a taste of your own medicine. Yeah, but mostly because, um, but it's mostly because you've shunned my advice for the last 10 years about becoming a reader of certain books. I can't, I don't know. I can't articulate it. All I know is I'm feeling I've feelings. changed, okay? I've well, grown. I'm not sure if I like it. <laughs> <laughs> a be, you know, becoming a, a a deeper person or like a more uh, mature, no, thoughtful it's not, person. It's not about that. Seeking out deeper materials. It's not about that. <laughs> it's, it's not about you. I don't want you to do those things because I do. I told you I can't articulate it. I just know that it's been a little bit annoying for me. <laughs> uh, well, can't make sense of that. Um, Sometimes things don't make sense. You have to be okay with that. You know? Life yeah. lesson. Um, which, speaking of that, um, I have, uh, just because I don't know when ever I would, I don't know what context I will be able to bring this back up, um, oh. is just my thoughts on why I have become a reader. So Sarah has... 100% um, been, well, a bookworm since I've ever known you. And yeah. that is, I mean, s shortly after fetus. So literally like two years old. Yeah. I was like falling asleep reading books. That was my thing. <laughs> um, and ever since I have known, loved, and been with you, you have been a connoisseur of mm -hmm. the written word. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been basically, it is such a big part of your identity um yeah and you have been trying to get me to be a reader for a long time and i resisted it for a long time um mm -hmm. because that's just not um i don't know why actually i don't know if it's uh, like be, just because you're stubborn that's really why yeah i don't i mean it, you didn't grow up in that uh like being taught that it's important and right. nobody we really know reads a lot like there's just i mean yeah, I mean, that's, I was never nurtured to be a reader. So at, into adulthood, I think maybe through my insecurity, probably, um, I don't know. I, this you were also I'm just very like, much a proponent of if I'm going to read, I'm going to learn while I read. So like the nonfiction type business stuff. Right. That kind of argument. This is definitely like looking back in hindsight and trying to, you know, deconstruct the way I was acting at this time. But like whenever yeah. I graduated high school, one in high school, I don't remember ever reading a book and you're supposed to read all these classics for like English and stuff. I, I don't, I didn't read any of them. I, don't, I only read I don't one um, in my English classes, but I come out of school and I, I remember tells you something about the Oklahoma yeah. education system. <laughs> yeah. The Oklahoma education system. Um, if you didn't know, is one of the top uh, list in the country of the worst schools. Yeah. Um, definitely. We're in the top five, I think, or top 10 for sure. Top, yeah, definitely in the top 10 worst schools in the country. Um, yeah. Or you could say, you know, 
in the bottom yeah, ten. Uh, right, yeah. But you know, we're Oklahoma, we're we're in the, the top ten of a lot of things and we want to keep it that way, you know? Yeah. We got uh, top ten worst schools, top ten most obese, top ten abusers of opi- opioids, uh number top one 10 in, in mess in uh, uh tr- you know, human trafficking. Yeah. Um, you know, top we're ten just in, really, in worst road conditions. Um, really doing great over there. Oh yeah. I mean, anyways, that's off topic. <laughs> top 10 state. You know, it just none of the top 10s you actually want to be in. Yeah. Um, so anyways. Yeah, you were not a reader. I was not a reader and I was actively uh, proud and I think probably through a mask of, of pride mm-hmm. um, of how much I didn't read. Like it was kind of like. Maybe that's the self-righteous anger yeah, I kind of feel like right a, now. I was like braggadocious about how much I didn't yeah. read. Yeah. Anyways, through the influence of my. Um, very lovely wife I began to read more Mm -hmm. but not I would say we started with the Harry Potter books yeah I went from like zero books a year to maybe like three five five something like that um you know and then went on from there but then within the last couple years and especially this last year I have decided to become more of a reader mm-hmm. because I just basically came to the conclusion that I have never met or heard of a wise person who doesn't read. Mm-hmm. Every wise person I've ever, uh, you know, studied, met, heard of, found quotes from, you know, anything like that, there is n- nobody that um, has basically been somebody that I want to be like. And they're right. like, I don't read books. Right. It's, it's always like, I read a book a day. I read a book a week. Mm-hmm. This Look at this. Ma- like, I've read this massive library in my office. Like, every single wise person that I want to become like right. reads extensively. Mm-hmm. And any person that I have ever, uh, I guess I shouldn't say any, but for the majority, for the most part, any person that I have uh, come in contact with or known or, you know, whatever that actively doesn't read doesn't live a life that I want to emulate. Mm -hmm. So that's basically kind of my thought process of why you should read is because I've never met a wise person that doesn't. Yeah. And I feel like we should all be striving for wisdom. I mean, I am a big advocate for reading, so you don't have to tell me. Yeah. And I actually (laughs) heard a quote um, this week that um, was, we have more information in than ever before but less wisdom mm-hmm. than ever before mm-hmm. um, which i very much agree with yeah um so anyways a man without a country by Kurt Vonnegut. all that being said he read this book that <laughs> changed his life <laughs> it definitely changed my week i'll say that yeah um, <laughs> i can't i can't speak for my life because you know it's only it's only been uh, like 10 days since i read it um but it did i think I I guess this is why I loved it so much. I felt heard. Yeah. Well, that's the, the whole point of reading. Is, you know, through this existential crisis, through um, like voicing myself and like feeling like I'm a, I am a desert of like feeling mm-hmm. whenever I think maybe possibly I'm an oasis of feeling within a desert. Um Meaning that there's potential for the things that I'm feeling, seeing, and observing to be uh, things that need to be 
seen, heard, and observed um, mm-hmm. through the uh, lens of an artist and brought forth into culture. Mm-hmm. And reading A Man Without a Country made me feel like that is what Kurt is and was. Totally. Um, Kurt's dead, by the way. Um, the Wow. <laughs> sounded so sympathetic right uh there. kurt is up in heaven now <laughs> and if you know kurt Vonnegut, you'll know that's a joke um <laughs> so the book i mean i felt heard from the very first sentence yeah um so it's a collection. well first of all kurt Vonnegut had a very plain um way of speaking like it, he just like said things it was it, the, and the way that everything he said was so simple and so clear and so true yeah so the way that kurt writes is matter of fact yeah but a lot of it is matter of fact through the lens of a otherworldly creature like yes. not not like in a sci-fi way like it's written it from an alien perspective but more so like it's kind of written in a matter of fact way if an alien observed from the outside what the human existence was right and so he was like yeah so he was definitely an observer of human existence so instead of saying it like a normal you know just the way that we would think about it because we are human and we experience these things every day he would write it in a way that it makes you think like wow that is weird if you observe it from like uh, out of body out of body experience yeah um but anyways the first essay is called as a kid i was the youngest um and all of the essays are titled the first li- line of the essay um you know cr- creativity yeah. um so well matter of fact yes right? <laughs> but i the, i say i felt heard from the very first sentence because the very first sentence of the book is as a kid i was the youngest member of my family and the youngest member in any family is always a joke maker because a joke is the only way he can enter into an adult conversation. Yeah. And I am not the youngest in my family. I'm actually the oldest in my family, but I always strived to be at the adult table. Right. I always strive to be in the adult conversations. I was never interested in like being at the kid table, sitting with the kids. Like I always wanted to be, I guess it, Older. I don't know if I wanted to be older, but I definitely wanted to be a part of the older conversations. Mm-hmm. And I felt heard by that just because that's exactly how I was heard, you know, at the Thanksgiving t- dinner table. It's like basically everybody's having a conversation and you aren't really a part of it because you're like nine or whatever. But then I found that whenever I could make a joke that made the adults laugh, now I got to be a part of the adult conversation. Right. And so then I became a joke maker. Um through that of just like wanting to be a part of adult conversations. Which is also still the way you enter into a conversation. I mean, yeah, if you're not speaking up too much, you just throw in a joke here and there and then the whole group laughs at you, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, I don't really have any more commentary other than, other than like I felt hurt from the first sentence and I really like that sentence. As a whole, what are the essays about? Just generally, like... I know they're like a range of topics, but yeah, I mean, that's essays, the, I would, I, I don't know if I'm smart enough to actually pull out like a, um, a th- full on like theme, I mm-hmm. suppose of, of the book, but it definitely, Kurt is a, um, anti-war. Um, mm-hmm. so a lot of it has to do with, um, the, a critical view of our government and a uh, critical view of the way that we are treating our world. So I would say it has to do with um, anti-war, anti-war, um, 
continue to deny climate change. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I guess it just comes down to humanism. And yeah, and, I would say he's very much a critic of America. Yeah, I mean that's that's the reason it's called a man without a country because right. he says like. Um, I call myself a man without a country because how can I be basically uh, uh, proud of being an American when whenever our school systems in America are some of the worst in the world? How can I be like proud of being an American, you know, if you know, uh, we are destroying the planet through our addiction to fossil fuels and right. like all of this stuff? Yeah, and he <clears throat> fought in World War II, and what he's a survivor was a survivor of the Dresden bombing, so like that's where the government and anti-war conversation comes in because he definitely like struggled with it firsthand and had ptsd i'm assuming um yeah definitely like a critic of america but not in a cynical way i guess you would say like i yeah. never i never anytime i've read anything of vonnegut i've never felt like oh my gosh he's so cynical like mm -hmm. it's just like i guess matter of fact pointing things out right and so I guess one of the why I say I felt heard is because I also feel critical towards these things. Right. But I don't, I have not figured out how to wrap my language around how I feel without just being divisive, you know, or, or feeling like if I speak out, I am just yeah. adding to the noise of the world. But hearing Vonnegut's point of view, it's kind of like, Yes, absolutely. Like I agree so much with like what you are saying and it you're able to write it in a way that brings sarcasm or it brings some humor um, into satirical. it. It brings some like satire to it, which makes it like not just this hit piece. Right. Um, which I find uh very like inspiring. Yeah. Um and that's not to say that I agree with absolutely every single word that Kurt Vonnegut ever said, but I do just agree with a lot of his sentiments in this book. Yeah. Um and in the second essay of Do You Know What a Twerp is, basically what the S this part of the essay is about is is socialism and um how basically just because a few people have um, taken on the word, you know, socialism. Right. And then went on and, uh, you know, uh, committed atrocities, um, yeah. you know, or just terrible things. Um, but they they did it under this, like, Guys. flag, you know, or whatever of, like, you know, socialism. But it actually wasn't socialism. But that's what gave, gave the stigma or whatever. And he's talking about... Um, Stalin and shuttering churches um, and the, the suppression of religion. Mm -hmm. um, and so he says, you know, about Stalin's shuttered churches and those in China today, such suppression of religion was supposedly justified by Karl Marx's statement that religion is the opium of the people. And Marx said that back in 1844 when opium and opium derivatives were the only effective painkillers anyone could take. Mm -hmm. Marx himself had taken them. He was grateful for the temporary relief they had given him, and he, he was simply noticing and surely not condemning the fact that religion could also be comforting to those in economic or social distress. It was a casual truism, not a dictum. Yeah, I think that, well, the first thing is that 
context is so important mm -hmm. and we just kind of forget about context anymore like we see a quote and we're like yes that's that's exactly what i think but mm -hmm. actually if you read the whole context of the quote it's like the opposite of what you think it says right <laughs> i feel like and, and that in particular like with the opium like obviously nowadays we don't view it that way mm -hmm. we don't we don't view it as like a painkiller that's like a relief yeah. it's more of an addiction and um which would allow somebody who's very critical or you know rejecting right. a religion to you know basically go around and being like well you know re religion is the opium of the people and yeah. just use that you know to basically basically using a bible verse out of yeah, you know, yeah context i mean it's just kind of wild how you can how one sentence can literally flip meanings like it means mm -hmm. the exact opposite of what you think it means right it's crazy. I mean, a, a prime example of that is the line from Slaughterhouse Five that everybody oh, quotes. Oh yeah, the "Everything was beautiful and nothing hurt," mm -hmm. which they quote as like a utopian, I guess, ideal. But really, he said that line because he had already seen his whole life play out and knew that, like how it ended. He knew how he was going to die. So then nothing mattered anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he just was like, yeah, cool, whatever. I'll just like chill. <laughs> it's just like not what you think it means, but you should care about. I've actually gotten into this thing probably within the last week I've decided if I see a quote that I really like just really love and like kind of resonate with, I have um, bought the book that the quote is in to read it because I feel like context is important. So that's my new thing now. <laughs> um, so on to the uh, one of the, in the third essay, um, a really good quote from that is practicing an art, no matter how well or badly is a way to make your soul grow for heaven's sake, sing in the shower, dance on to the radio, tell stories, write a poem to a friend, even a lousy poem. Mm -hmm. Do it as well as you possibly can. You will get an enormous reward. You will have created something. It's one of my favorite Vonnegut quotes because, well, obviously for obvious reasons. I, I think in the culture we live in now, there's this idea that <clears throat> if you're not doing something to put it out there or to like gain recognition or whatever that is, then it's not worth doing. Um, and I'm a huge proponent of hobbies mm -hmm. and like doing things because you want to do it. Um, it kind of goes, there's this quote I saw online last week that kind of goes with this. It says, um, if anything is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Mm. And it's the same idea. Like just because you don't know how to play piano very well, doesn't mean you shouldn't play piano. Like if it brings you joy, then it's worth doing poorly. Just yeah. do it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, There's I, a, I think we just so underestimate uh, doing, like it's kind of like, I guess being bored. Like we just underestimate the value that having a hobby does or that being bored allows you. Like mm -hmm. there's so much creativity and just like, painting something stupid that nobody's ever going to see and that's not going to make you any money and right. there's like so much value in that and we just in our hustle culture and our like only work matters like once you hit i don't know 25 or something it's like you're allowed to have no interest outside of whatever your work is and that is just 
insane. Yeah. It's and crazy to me. Kurt also said that um, before the rise of social media. He he died yeah. in like 2007, I, I think. I, six or seven, yeah. Um, And so before like this entire new era of mm-hmm. the world was at play where we're sharing absolutely everything. Right. And it, it, I think it rings true even more now. Definitely. Than probably when he wrote it because now we don't feel like we can ever create something without the intention of yeah. sharing it. Well, yeah. And, and we feel like if we're not being <clears throat> validated in our creation, then our creation isn't worth it. Mm-hmm. But like that's so... That's such a sad, <laughs> sad existence to me to like, I don't know. It just seems crazy that you would only create based on what outside people want you to create. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I I, just don't understand that at all. Like, shouldn't you listen to the truth of what's inside, you know? Yeah. We just don't do that because we're too concerned about putting it out. Mm-hmm. Like, no, focus inward. That's it. Yeah, and if if you're... Only creating the things that, you know, basically are going to be liked by Following the widest the trend. audience. Yeah. Then you're, you're never going to change anything. Also, choosing to not create that stuff, that, that bad poem that nobody will ever see, like I think probably will keep you from getting to the point, getting to your masterpiece. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, because you're not flushing out like all of this these ideas and you're not learning like from you're like making creative mistakes and then learning how to paint it better next time or whatever. Like you're not, you're just kind of stalled mm-hmm. in your creative process. And I, I mean, you'll never get to your masterpiece that way. Yeah. I think I actually, we've had this conversation a little bit um, with Josh, our friend who was on the podcast last week. I said, something to him about because he's a musician and i said i wonder if there's like a lot of people a lot of artists uh music artists around today who will never like maybe the biggest rock band that we've ever known exists right now but will never know it because they're too concerned with following the trend of music right now they're Mm -hmm. making you know the very electronic or very hip-hop or whatever they're like following the trends instead of like making their true sound and like we'll never know it Mm -hmm. i think that's a fascinating thing to consider yeah anyways that's a whole Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a whole thing (laughs) so i guess moving on um here's just uh two great jokes that i love um he is a funny was a funny man yes he says he 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 was um when he got a degree in anthropology and he's kind of talking about that because he, he like taught English and like he also did a bunch of stuff in um, engineering and, and um, he's talking about that. And then he says, it was a big mistake for me to take a degree in anthropology anyway, because I can't stand primitive people. They're so stupid. <laughs> and I just think that's an amazing joke. Um, and then here's another great joke. He This was uh, written in the Bush era um, because he he. I mean, he never even saw uh, Obama or obviously no Trump. I would love to hear what he has to say. Oh gosh, about that. Um, but probably not great things. He's very critical of Bush and, and you know the warmongering and <laughs> the uh, this joke is, is I think pretty famous, but it's still funny. Uh, the last thing I ever wanted to was the last thing I ever wanted was was to be alive when the three most powerful people in the whole planet would be named Bush, Dick, and Colin. 
very matter of fact. Yes. And <laughs> funny. So he goes on to start talking about fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And I, I think his, it's just so spot on. And again, it's so true. Like up until today, like nothing has changed. I think it's so crazy when you read things that were written so long ago. I mean, even like we can even talk about like how 1984 is very indicative of Mm -hmm. our culture today and uh, Handmaid's Tale and um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, which I haven't read yet, but I hear is like very much kind of predicting our future or David Foster Wallace predicted the internet before the internet was a thing. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of crazy, like reading all of these old stuff that, really did come true and then it like kind of makes you feel like you're living in um like a i don't know dystopian novel or something mm-hmm. well and i think the danger of that too is it leads people to think like well this this stuff has been happening forever yeah and you know it, it the life goes on like we're we're still here right you know l- the world continued we're still here you know and they they had the same things going on you right. know, 50 years ago as we do now and i think that's a dangerous way to think totally um you know it, yeah it, because just because it was happening then doesn't mean it should be happening like right. it's, it still is wrong and also you know with the thing with like fossil fuels and climate change and all that type of stuff if everybody takes that view of like well i mean the world's still here it's like well do we care about the world? Can do we care about the human race being able to continue right beyond just our, you know, meager existence right. in, also, in all of you know? We time. have proof now that the world is suffering from what we've done right. <laughs> and what we're doing. So you don't really have the excuse of like, well, the world's still here. Well, yeah, but for how long? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> we have proof that it's going to crap. You know. <laughs> Quote from chapter or essay four, I'm going to tell you some news. Um, Here's what I think the truth is. We are all addicts of fossil fuels and in a state of denial. And like so many addicts about to face cold turkey, our leaders are now committing violent crimes to get what little is left of what we are hooked on. Hmm. Putting it in terms of addiction, that's interesting. Yeah, he talks about fossil fuels as an addiction and America's addiction with fossil fuels. I think that's the way he frames it. And it's well, there's a lot of money in it, right? Yeah, that's the whole point. I mean, all the money and 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 it's not even just like our politicians' addiction. Like the politicians are addicted to, and uh, capitalists are addicted to fossil fuels because of the money side of it, right? But all of us are addicted to it for the convenience side of it. It's like. We are addicted to driving our cars, right? You know, and we are addicted to um, air conditioning and electricity, and you know, uh, all, you know, mm-hmm. plastic packaging. Like we're all addicted to these things, and we are basically we can be quick well, to blame. Like, we can be quick yeah. to blame and be like, well, I mean, the 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 bad oil companies and the the government right. are like being bought off by the oil companies to continue doing this stuff. Which, yes, valid, all true, but and a big problem <laughs> yes but how are we changing there are lots, our personal yeah. everyday habits yeah um to actually combat th- what the r- whole reason that they are making so much money is because there's all of We're us just spending f- playing along money on it we're pawns in their game and it's like it's like what um hassan minaj has said but he was talking about Amazon specifically about how it doesn't really matter who you are. Every person has some moral 
um, thing against Amazon, mm-hmm. like whether it's like the way they treat their employees or how they do business or whatever it is. Like everyone has some sort some sort of moral um, aversion to Amazon. However, whenever you ask, okay, am I going to be moral or am I gonna, am I going to do what's convenient? Every single one of us says, oh yeah, convenience, duh. Like that's why we still have Prime, you know. Like mm-hmm. we still use Prime because it's convenient, and I feel like it's the same here. Like getting a car that um, doesn't take gas is more expensive. It's less convenient. It it like it's it's a a hassle to set up your life in a new way. It's like creating all new habits instead of like you know, using the bags at the grocery store, you have to remember to bring your own. And that is hard. That, mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that's like, it seems so minimal, but that's actually, it's hard to remember to get your bag. And then when you're already out, you're like, oh my gosh, I'll just get a plastic bag or I have to go home and get my reusable bags and then go back out. I don't want to go back out of my apartment, you know, or like shopping obviously is a huge one. Like how we consume clothes is very harmful to the environment but it's yeah convenient and and there's it's just so hard to like put new habits into place but it's also literally the place to start mm-hmm. is like not con- using paper towels every day and like yeah. <laughs> not just throwing away your forever 21 shirt and go buy another forever 21 shirt like there's plenty of clothes in existence already none of us have to buy new clothes ever like you could thrift or secondhand shop um for the rest of your life and or just be fine not be a victim of materialism and feel like that you need to buy a new outfit every single party you're invited to. well of course that's i mean that's kind of the point with like uh thrifting and secondhand shopping is like it's it's a completely different mindset than like oh new occasion new dress like that's not you don't need it Nobody remembers that you only wore that other dress to hanging in your closet once to the last event you went to. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody cares. But it it really does start with you shifting your mental perspective. To be fair, it does seem overwhelming like the government and all of these like rich political people or whatever are doing things that are really really harmful and like it seems kind of hopeless we can't really stop them kind of idea, you know? But if you do your best to, you know, fight, stick it to the man, you know, power mm-hmm. to the people, like it really can change things. Yeah, I I feel like maybe part of the human condition is to um, always that is that we always choose present convenience over future altruism. Yeah, because the sacrifice of that present convenience um we feel like that affects our life more to a heavier degree than not doing that ultimately affects the thing we're being altruistic against yeah so like not buying that affects me more than it'll ever help the environment or whatever it is and so we like we choose our current convenience over you know future altruism and i think that that is why it's important for um, government to step in in the way that, right. like, let's let's just say New York City and California are, you know, banning 
uh, single-use plastic bags. And it's like, yes, that is inconvenient, but we would never choose that inconvenience ourselves. Right. It is something that needs to happen, but there's no way we would get 9 million people to say, Oh yeah, I will inconvenience myself, um, you know, because I believe that this ultimately is going to be for the betterment of, you know, animal and humankind. And And like like I said, right now, if I forget my reusable bag, I'm like, well, that's okay. I mean, I'm already out, and I don't want to go back home. You know, what am I going to do? Put in my pocket. Yeah, if they don't have (laughs) a plastic bag for me to use, then I'm either carrying it in my arms, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or I go home and I get my bag, or I guess I could buy another reusable bag. But yeah, you know. I, I, I think, wonder if that's... I think just... Uh, I feel like it would be almost an impossibility to change the world in those ways without some I mean, sort takes, of governmental intervention both. Intervention because we would never choose to inconvenience ourselves. Right. Well, and, and we're just, there's just too much for the government. Not Like, we're too big of a world, you know, for the governments to not implement things yeah i i I just don't but i don't think that that overwhelmingness should stop you from doing what you can yeah absolutely kurt vonnegut quote don't spoil the party but here's the truth we have squandered our planet's resources including air and water as though there were no tomorrow so now there isn't going to be one yeah that's it and you know uh, kurt had a very uh, cynical view of the future um yeah and humanity and whether humanity ultimately can be good um i can't say i disagree (laughs) (laughs) yeah um the next essay is uh i've been called a luddite and a luddite is basically somebody who rejects new technology Um, so it's Mm. like every old geezer who's like Oh, yeah. My flip phone's just fine. You know, my road, my rotary I'm, dial, um, you know, got me I'm through a, the Great Depression. I'm sticking with that. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's basically like uh, it's almost a fear of, of like um, the future. future technology. Yeah. But to Kurt's credit, he w- came up as an adult and, and he lived his lifetime from whenever technologies progressed in a way that actually were detrimental to well, not that our current technologies aren't detrimental to, you know, some things, but yeah. specifically, let me just go ahead and quote him. Today we have contraptions like nuclear submarines armed with Poseidon missiles that have H-bombs in their warheads. Right. And we have contraptions like computers that cheat you out of becoming. Bill Gates says, wait till you see what your computer can become, but it's you who should be doing the becoming, not the damn full computer. Okay, first of all. I really love that idea. <laughs> I, do, I don't think that computers are, you know, the ultimate evil by any means. However, I do think, well, if you just think about like how much we rely on our phone, how much we rely on Google mm-hmm. um, to, you know, like we're curious, which it does have its like pros and cons, right? Because I do think like being curious about something and then like looking it up and reading the whole Wikipedia page about it or something like you learn something from that. Um but I do think it lets us um, kind of opt out of a certain exploration of ourselves. Like, I think we kind of um, like just settle for the answer that the Internet gives us instead of like really just pondering things mm-hmm. and like coming to your own conclusions. I think we do miss out on that sort of becoming. Yeah. It's like when we, I mentioned this last week, but 
you know, it's like whenever we do research. Yeah. That means Googling the question we have, reading one of the top, you know, four yeah. results and specifically uh, the one that already confirms our biases. Exactly. Yeah. We, we do sort of, I think, let the computer do the thinking for us, which, like I said, there are pros to it, but there are definitely some cons that I think we don't even remember our cons anymore, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and I think, you know, to Kurt's point, it's like their technology, whenever I say the word technology, we, yeah. we immediately think of smartphone. Right. Like that. Like we just think about... Because that's the time we live right. in. Right. We just think about the those technologies, but like nuclear warheads are technology. Mm-hmm. Technology that... Atomic bombs. Like all of those, like all of these things that are like world enders mm -hmm. like our technologies that our human race has created developed created stockpiled and with the intent of harm right uh with uh, under, or, under or the, quote unquote defense right under <laughs> the guise of protection right but it's like there's a difference between having like defense is um would be like anti warhead um you know I, I don't even know what the anti-missile like i don't remember exactly what those are called but essentially tracking systems mm -hmm. that can see when a missile's coming it yeah. goes and it shoots the bomb down like that's a defensive mechanism right anyways we don't have to get into all war talk but i would say if anything i would definitely be a pacifist because i believe that jesus the person regardless if you believe in his um, divinity, mm -hmm. I do believe in his truisms and human divinity. like in just the, the, the way that he lived his human life and the words and the life that he lived and the things that we can look at to practice, I believe, and well, I don't you know if, I, if it's a belief, it's more so if you look at the life of Jesus, he would be a pacifist. There's no way he would actively engage into war mm -hmm. as uh, flippantly as yeah. we do. Yeah. And it, well, I mean, it comes with a, I mean, we talked about this whenever we, we went to the sea, air and space museum here to see the uh, submarine and the video they show beforehand that like tells you all about it. Like literally the, the, um, the words that they use are like blah, blah, blah to defeat the enemy, you know? And I just like felt so like uncomfortable with mm -hmm. like, what innocents who are fighting who are fighting because the higher ups told them to mm -hmm. are the enemy like same as like like in kurt vonnegut's slaughterhouse five like the whole point is that like the wars were fought by the babies they're fought by the 20 year old men the 18 year old men not the higher up government officials who claimed the war you know yeah. like it's it's this whole idea of like pinning people against people and like but but why you know and i think you hear all, all of those war stories too about like you know just scared um 18 year old german kids who ran into scared 18 year old american kids and they just like looked at each other and had a, they have like a human connection and then each run their own separate way because mm -hmm. Generally speaking, most of the common people don't have problems with the other common people. Like it's, it's just such a different, we just forget about that. 
Yeah. In in the like, I don't know. I just don't like. I guess war terms. Yeah. The enemy. I'm like, who's the enemy though? Like, just because they're on the opposite side means they're the enemy. But are they really? Like, which that gets into like a whole bunch of conversations, but. Because mm-hmm. then you have to ask, like, okay, well, am I the enemy? Or, you know what I mean? Like, right. and obviously there are, I mean, I'm not saying that, like, we shouldn't have gone to war for World War II or whatever. Like, I mean, obviously Hitler needed to be <laughs> stopped. He was a terrible, terrible man. Mm-hmm. But, like, I just think that, as I've said, I think probably lots of times, you should ask yourself every single question. And like from every single angle. And that's the only way to really truly know what your opinion is. Mm-hmm. And so. I mean, I think that Kurt asked those questions um, like w- specifically within like Slaughterhouse Five and uh, the Dresden bombing. And he, yes. like, he believes like he thinks or I mean, uh, anyways, Kurt Vonnegut would say the Dresden was a atrocity. Yes. Like the um, it, from at. From his perspective and at the data that was given to him at that time, there were like 120,000 people mm-hmm. who were murdered. By our, um, by, our by, us by, and our know, allies. Like by the US and the UK within like 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. Which is more people than died in uh, Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one other one. Um, yeah. Like, like nuclear bombs were dropped and yeah. killed less people than what were killed in Dresden. Um, but he goes on to like basically take on the voice of um, maybe a critic and say, or not even a critic, um, more so like somebody who is a part of the war and saying like, if we didn't do that, think about how, like if if we didn't stop Hitler, then how many more people would Hitler right. go, go on to kill? And it's like. Okay, kinda yeah, like that's the it. lesser of two evils. That's like an interesting like way to think about it. Like if we didn't, it, like what what was our moral obligation? You know, it's like was it to do this and let it keep happening, which could have led to even more death, or was it you know doing it in, like right. whatever? And, and so, I think essentially because ultimately humanity is so screwed up, there is no right or wrong because right. there. There just is. I agree. I agree. But that's what I'm saying. Like, that's why I ask every single question and like feel fine with asking every single question. Like it doesn't. I think sometimes um, people get uncomfortable whenever I like say certain questions out loud. They're like, how can you ask that? Like or like because I think it, it like makes them question their own certainties and their own beliefs, you know, and I feel like you should question your own certainties and beliefs. Like, cause how can you know that they're your belief if you don't examine it from every angle? Right. That's kind of how I feel. I mean, I think that's where the problem with where we are in our world and especially in the church. Like, yeah, nobody's really allowed to just freely ask questions anymore. Right. Um, because of our, outrage culture and our call out culture and, and our 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 fear of answers yeah. but like wouldn't i just don't understand why you wouldn't want to know the, like even if it's an answer that you don't want isn't it better to know like isn't it better to be like okay now i know the truth and i can move on like well you would think that but i mean the human condition leads us to um have a fear of going to get a doctor checkup because 
if we know, I guess, then we yeah. know. We have I, a fear of logging into our bank account because if we don't look at it, then we then we don't we not don't have, have money. To admit that. But if we actually log in and look at it and we see how much is in there, now we have the knowledge and we have a uh, basically responsibility. responsibility to do something about it. And so it's like, I guess that's true. I just, I just find it wild that you would um, settle, <laughs> you know, like I, but I also like asking questions. So maybe I'm the odd one out here. <laughs> Who knows? So thinking about uh, like the nuclear bombs and, you know, the American stockpile Mm -hmm. of bombs and like our lustfulness to just to go to war and murder people. Yeah. Um, And there are obviously very critical people on the other side that hate that I even just said that and very much hated Kurt Vonnegut for having a platform Mm -hmm. and saying it. And I just really loved this letter that he he has this whole one of one of his essays is actually just letters that people sent to him and his responses. And this person wrote to Kurt and said, if you knew that a man posed danger to you, may be that he held a gun in his pocket and you felt he would not hesitate one moment to use it on you. What would you do? We know Iraq poses a threat to us, to the rest of the world. Why do you sit here and pretend like we are protected? That is exactly what happened with Al-Qaeda in 9-11. And with Iraq, though, the threat is on a much larger scale. Should we sit back and be little children and sit in fear and just wait? And Kurt says, I wrote back. Please, for the sake of all of us, get a shotgun, preferably a 12-gauge double barrel, and right there in your own neighborhood, blow off the heads of people, cops accepted, who may be armed. (laughs) (laughs) He's so sarcastic. (laughs) And it's like, he's so sarcastic, but also that raises like a really important question of like, we think these people are armed and they may use it against us. Well, does that mean it gives you a right to blow the head off of some guy who may be armed and may use it against you? Yeah. What is your belief that they have weapons? How does that um, justify you attacking them? Like, it's kind of like what I said to you a couple of days. I don't even remember what we were talking about, but I said, yeah, well, I mean, their actions don't justify yours mm-hmm. and vice versa. You know, like just because they do some, or that you think that they might do something that doesn't actually justify what you're doing. Like you still have a responsibility. We still have a responsibility as the human race to like do right. Mm -hmm. You know, just because you think someone might do wrong doesn't mean you get to do wrong and, you know, feel good about yourself for it. Like, I I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the whole preemptive evil. Yeah. You know, it's like, you're so scared of somebody else create, causing evil that you're just going to do it first yeah and feel good about yourself because you prevented them from doing it right and since you're on the surviving end you feel that you did it good yeah but then that also goes like to to like moral questions of you know if if you were given the choice and you could push an innocent man off a building Mm -hmm. knowing that it would save fifty thousand people right like would you do it? Right. Um, and it's like, well, you would save 50,000, but you would be making. You'd you'd make the decision that that one person's life isn't worth it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, I don't know. 
I mean, obviously, I hope I'm never in that situation, but. <laughs> yeah. And then it's also like, you know, there's the whole, uh, there's a train going down the track. And yeah, yeah. it's heading for a group of like 10 people and you can pull the lever. Right. And you can switch it to only kill two people or whatever. Um, it's and like what it's Captain like, America said in The Last Avengers. We don't trade lives hmm. to um, Vision. Yeah. But then the whole thing, Vision was like, yeah, but if you kill me, then everyone else survives. You know? Mm-hmm. But it's, I I think it's an impossible choice to make. Which may be the impossible choice that Jon Snow is going to have to make against oh, the White Walkers. Game of Thrones is killing me. I'm so nervous. I told, I, I said the other day, I was like, okay, there are three outcomes that I will hate. And I'm, there aren't that many outcomes that we can have. So I feel like no matter what, I'm going to be so sad about whatever happens. Yeah, we're recording this uh, after the second episode come out. Yeah. And the third episode is, uh, I guess, probably going to be it's the great the battle. battle. And we are definitely going to lose some people some we don't want to lose. And I I will be... I'm just so nervous. <laughs> okay, but getting back to uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, yes, let's not <laughs> get too down. Yeah, the... but we've we've been talking for a while now, and uh, we I haven't even got to like th- one of my favorite. Okay, well, let's do your favorite yeah, pieces of the book, um, and that is whenever he starts talking about um, humanism mm-hmm. um, and humanists. Mm-hmm. And I his, think maybe I'm a humanist, by the way. Um, and his thoughts on on religion and Jesus and like he's not a Christian. Yeah. Um, He's a humanist. Um, But just these thoughts are so poignant and so true still. And so in line with what I feel that like, this is part of the book that I was just like, a man in the back of just like, (laughs) I was, I was a man in the back saying a man. Say it louder for the people in the back. And uh, the, so I'm, I'm going to read through like multiple quotes here that kind of all do with the same thing. Okay. Um, so uh, my parents and grandparents were humanists. That's what used to be called free thinkers. So as a humanist, I am honoring my ancestors, which the Bible says is a good thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, we humanists serve as best we can the only abstraction with which we have any real familiarity, which is our community. So... Mm-hmm. Serving the community mm-hmm. is the best way, what thing you can do. Um, and then he says, how do humanists feel about Jesus? I say of Jesus, as all humanists do, if what he said is good, and so much of it absolutely is beautiful, what does it matter if he was God or not? But if Christ hadn't delivered the Sermon on the Mount, which is its message of mercy and pity, I wouldn't want to go on being a human being. I'd just as soon be a rattlesnake. Mm-hmm. The thing I find interesting is that I've noticed about myself the last, I don't know, maybe three or four years, um, and I st- don't know really what it means, <laughs> is that I tend to very much believe, or or not believe, but um, to very much relate to people who don't believe in God or Christianity or whatever you want to say. Like I relate to them a lot more than I do people who, you know, do belong, which I find, 
I don't know what that means, but like, like Kurt, everything he says about religion and Jesus and whatever, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh yeah, totally, I believe that. Like, absolutely, I believe that. Like, it's, it's, it, it kind of threw me for a loop in like 2016 because I was seeing like with the political climate and the election and everything, all of these, you know. Christians, these people that I supposedly share a circle with, right, saying all these things that were literally the exact opposite of anything I would ever, like, believe or say out loud or think or whatever. And then literally the opposite side of that, all of these humanists, these atheists, these these people who don't believe in God saying these things that I've I wholeheartedly believe in, you know, and I just find it really fascinating. I don't know what that means as, (laughs) as far as like, is the church just in a really bad spot right now? Or am I in a bad spot (laughs) or whatever? But I just think it's fascinating that these people who, and I also think that part of it is that because they aren't a part of a church of the church, like as a whole, that there's a very beautiful point of view from them that we should pay attention to. Yeah. If you if you call yourself a Christian, you should listen to what people outside of your bubble are saying. Yeah. And none of it, they don't. I mean, that's we're not really like concerned with <laughs> right outside opinions or whatever you want to say commentary. But like, I think it's really important. And I guess maybe because I feel a little of an outsider within the like church well yeah i mean it's because the american church has mostly sold itself to you know a political party and and aligned itself with nationalism it's not even just politics though i because i think like there's a lot of um underlying messages that the church teaches that i think are wrong and like that i personally has taught me like negative things Mm -hmm. and that i like can't get out of you know like I I just think there's a lot of, and I'm not saying that uh, there's a lot of things wrong with every, everything. Like it's, it's not, you know, and nothing is ever going to be perfect, but I just think maybe I agree so much with like a bunch of these like non-believers or atheists because I feel like an outsider within the circle and like, they're just pointing out the things that I see, Mm -hmm. you know? And I just, I think that's, it confused me at first. And now I just think like it's something really important that like we need to talk about, you know? Yeah. And I think this, this is probably my favorite quote of the whole thing. And it gets back to, you know, Kurt talking about the Sermon on the Mount, yeah. which is, uh, he says, how about Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, and so on. Not exactly planks in the Republican platform. (laughs) Not exactly George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, or Donald Rumsfeld stuff. But for some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes. But often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. 
I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Mm-hmm. Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Give me a break. Yeah, I think it's so true. And I think that it takes... The, uh, it's just so unfortunate that nobody, everybody refuses to listen to anybody else, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because I just think like, I mean, even with, even within the church bubble, like nobody will listen to anybody else, you know, and like you have somebody who I think had very sound opinions and obviously was well versed and like knew his Bible and like knew the stuff like they're not you know, ignorant and like they're pointing something out that I think is really important. And we're just like, well, you should believe in Jesus, you know, or God, whatever. I I don't know. I just feel so kind of confused with like the church at whole. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, I think some of that has to do with church, but I think some, a lot of that has to do with, um, nationalists that claim the name of Christianity. Well, I agree. But at the same time, like, I have very, like, uh, personal connections that I see the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with um, politics and everything to do with... Well, it does have to do with politics well, because politics I mean, inform your social decisions. And I mean, if, I agree, if you're, but... If your, re- like, religion, if you're the church that you worship in, if that if that church aligns itself with, like, um, with a political affiliation, which then determines how you view and treat people... I know. I'm not saying that it it's not political in that sense. I'm saying... I'm saying that it's to okay. <laughs> now I'm confused at what I'm saying. <laughs> I think what I'm saying is that politics aside, right? Politics aside, I know plenty of people who are good people in the church who are still who are going about christianity or faith or whatever you want to say wrong Mm -hmm. and it's because of the way we teach church i and i i know that there is a political agenda or whatever you want to say but i'm that aside the the way we do church is wrong i think and the way that we engage in church is wrong and it's not like i don't think it's what was intended definitely and not. i think like there's a reason that <laughs> i find it i just find it so confusing that i look at atheists and humanists people outside of christianity for my uh or that i i see them saying things and like oh yeah yes that that to me is what like Jesus is. That mm-hmm. to me is what faith is. Right. Nobody in the church really. I mean, there are some, there are a few that I admire within the Christian faith, you know, that I think had it right or have it right. Um, but most of the time it's the it's people outside who who don't mm-hmm. claim any of that that I think have it right. Yeah. It's basically it's sad that a 
you know, atheist lead singer of a rock band can point out the truths of Jesus more effectively than, uh, you know, a, a pastor of a megachurch. Yeah. And I think that the atheist rock band guy is correct. Like that nothing, I don't, I don't think he's wrong in any of his thinking. And yeah, I, I mean, I think the same thing about Kurt Vonnegut. Like, exactly. Yeah. Like in that statement that I just read about Jesus's like Sermon on the Mount, his most like right. famous, like, prose uh, of like speaking of what he what he in like right. wants for the world right is and like completely forgotten essentially right in place of a legalistic view of moses before jesus was you know like right. came and, and and took over like uh you know grace right um is like why do right. we why do we like hold our fist in the air and like got to keep the 10 commandments um, and maybe, versus like being merciful. Right. Being and maybe graceful. it is something to do with politics, but I think that's the, that's the thing I'm trying to say that like the church teaches these lessons aside from politics, they teach these lessons, whether overtly or not that I think they're just like incorrect. All they, they do is teach you how to like, you know, not express your true feelings mm-hmm. because like like you're you're not supposed to and it's like you're not supposed to want these things that every human being naturally wants but the the reason we all want them is because if you believe the christian faith like god created you that way he created you to want connection and um he created you to want like this there's this like actual like thing that is not satisfied within you and he created you to want to satisfy that mm. and um our one of our pastors a couple weeks ago he said he like god doesn't judge you for like trying to satisfy that hole that f- fill that need like mm-hmm. he doesn't judge you for that because he created you that way all you have to do is learn how to like navigate it and you know whatever but like i think that's true like i i and all the church does is kind of like try to like uh put out the candle. You know what I mean? They try to like cover it up and like not not really like teach you how to be a human being. Like not, I think the church doesn't know how to like accept humanity. Mm-hmm. I think is what I'm saying. Yeah, like the humanity is humanity, full of doubt. humanity is broken. Humanity is beautiful, but it's broken. And like we don't uh, we don't know how to accept the broken. Mm-hmm. And so instead we just say like, well you you're not supposed to want that. You know, and all it does is create a lot of shame, I think, yeah, within people. And so then we all end up <laughs> like walking around as these like hypocrites. That's what happens. Yeah. In my personal opinion. <laughs> and I, I just think it's wild that I connect more with humanists and atheists than I do, whatever you want to label yourself mm. as, than I do with the people who I supposedly belong to. Right. You know, that's insane to me. And it, uh, that's a general statement. Obviously, it's not everybody, but. Yeah. I mean, if it was everybody. Right. Like, we, we know lots of people. Right. That are, you know, living out, um, trying, I guess. Yeah. We, we, we ourselves, I would say, and those who we are connected with and strive to be connected with are people who are 
striving to become more like Jesus every day, not trying to become more like an American Christian every day. Exactly. I'm trying to become less like an American Christian every day and question everything that the American church has ever taught me because so much of it is, is like not, it's it's not, it's not biblically based. And even if it is biblically based, it's not biblically based on the words of Jesus. It's like, or it's distorted, distorted, you know, out of context for what it actually is. And not based on the pillar of the faith, which is, you know, Jesus right. and like God becoming fully human, living the human existence, showing us the the basically the richness of human life, yeah. taking on our faults and our sins and our, you know, transgressions, dying for it for us and then leaving us as he's resurrected with a message of grace and understanding and that we can go about our lives not having to worry about the legalistic um you know thing of Moses in the 10 commandments and making sure that we follow absolutely every single rule regula- regulation and political affiliation in order to you know enter into uh the kingdom of God in order to have right. like, you know, whatever. Think, it's like if we actually focus mm-hmm. on Jesus and who Jesus is, I the American church shouldn't look hardly anything like what it looks like in our lives as we are part of the Christian faith should look very different than what they do if we're actually following the Sermon on the Mount of blessed are the meek, right? blessed are the merciful, Blessed are the peacemakers. Those are all things that are not on our top priority list, at, you know, in, well, in def- America. Like, yeah. When you look at the church at large, the the church as a whole, like it's it's just not, it's it's not a representation of that. No. I don't think. And I, I mean, may, I, I always question because I, I do think I, I tend to like be kind of critical or cynical about the church, but I don't think that it it shows that, and I would assume most people believe yeah. that, like agree, um, and I think that that's a shame. And I think to even let's uh we can bring uh, Game of Thrones back into here in mm, Tyrion's okay. um, words that you don't have to make peace with your uh you only have to make peace with your enemies. Yeah, exactly. And it's like blessed are the peacemakers, and they're like, oh, I'm peaceful. It's like okay. Are you still peaceful when you're talking about refugees or right. Muslims or anybody of a different faith for that matter or anybody of a different uh, color or socioeconomic class or orientation? Like, yeah, sexual orientation or, you know, in gender preference, like all of these different things. Like, are you being a peacemaker about in all of those categories and not just being a peacemaker within your factions of the church? Right. Well, the answer is no. Like, if you. If you are truly following Jesus' words, and as I guess I should say, if I am truly following mm-hmm. like Jesus' words and I'm trying to be meek and merciful and a peacemaker, then my decisions do not align with anything that our uh, American political system say on either the left or the right. Yeah. Because like we talked about in Faith and Politics podcast, it's like, Jesus doesn't is isn't a Democrat or a Republican. Like Jesus has no political affiliation, and that's the whole point. Yeah, I think it's just absolutely and 
saying how backwards things I think maybe this goes back to what we were saying earlier like the context of everything is key and we have just we as in the church I think has taken so many things out of context and like and I know I, I don't know maybe I've taken things out of context who knows but I've I feel so strongly and have felt so strongly since I was like 12 mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that I I that there's something in the church that is just not right it's just not correct and I don't I don't know yeah I don't I, know how to fix it I don't even know can't even really articulate what it is but yeah I completely agree and I also recognize in the same way that you just said that like I there's no way I have it all right like yeah there, but again that's humanity right that's the the brokenness of like I just we use humanity as like a, uh, especially on the internet and memes and stuff like oh humanity's so good you know when you see somebody like feed a dog or whatever mm-hmm. it's like oh humanity but like humanity is actually the broken pieces of us like humanity is like the things that like hurt your heart but like you have compassion because it's humanity mm-hmm. you know and, like I feel like if you just tap into that and if you just like lead with that then like you'll know jesus yeah i think again like with what you're saying whenever i find myself searching for the teachings of jesus i find myself going down a different path than whenever i am searching the teachings of the western church Mm -hmm. like if i'm just focused on the teachings and the you know values i guess yeah. of western religion i don't find myself walking down the same path that i do as whenever i just focus on the the, the teachings of uh, you know jesus quote unquote our savior mm-hmm. like that i fully believe like i like, as a christian and it's like easter was yesterday it's like i fully believe in the death and resurrection of this fully man, fully God entity, you know, what, yeah. whatever Christ. Um, and so within that, I need to be more focused on that fully man, fully God's teaching than following a religious tradition that I don't feel aligns anymore or generally yeah. aligns with that message of meekness peacefulness, mercifulness. Um, yeah. I think so it's on. just really confusing. And I think it's hard to know like what to be a part of. Yeah. Not was, even just in religion, but just in life. Like it's hard to know like what to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, everything is so, literally everything in the world is so crazy right now. Yeah. I do want to throw a disclaimer in there. And say that there are church Christian leaders and churches that are pursuing the correct things. Absolutely. It's like I said, that's a general statement, but I I know, I I mean, I I know people who are like genuinely following Jesus and like creating a space and a place for people to come to, to, that's like true and not whatever else everything else is right like i've i've been a part of i am a part of and i am 
you know, mentored by, you know, all the uh, people who I feel are. Yeah. But again, pursuing like for general, you know, generalities, like pursuing the right path. Right. But again, I think regardless of anything and everything, you should ask yourself every question from every angle. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't know what you believe. Absolutely. I think. Yeah. I I agree. And I am questioning all of all of those things. Um, and uh, the answers that I come out with have not really been, oh, yeah, that's what we do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, huh. Interesting. What should I change? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So that is one of the main reasons why I love A Man Without a Country so much because Kurt points out um, very eloquently and very plainly um, some of the problems and hypocrisies that I see with um, the Western church's alignment with republicanism and nationalism. And Um, also just criticizing, I think, some of the things that America does. We're so entitled and whatever in america we just think we're the best and i just think it's important to read uh opinions on how maybe we're not (laughs) you know you shouldn't be so arrogant that you think you don't need to change something yeah and then like do your best that you can do to change it i'm just looking at my uh highlights here to see if there's anything to end on and there is one to end on, but I also just really think this is funny. He's talking about his, he has two uncles, one that he really liked, one that didn't. One uncle that was basically a, um, a toxic masculinity man. Um, and he says, when I got home from the Second World War, my uncle Dan clapped me on the back and he said, you're a man now. So I killed him. <laughs> Not really, but I certainly felt like doing it. <laughs> uh, and he goes on to tell another story, the story of uh, the uncle he did like. And uh, I don't remember it exactly, and I don't have it highlighted to to read it, but paraphrased. Essentially, they were just doing something normal. Him and his uncle were sitting hanging under out, a tree. like sitting under a tree, just like basically just counting the leaves. And his uncle turned to him and said, "If this isn't nice, I don't know what is." And Kurt has taken that as a mantra for life, and he encourages all of us to take that as a mantra uh, for life. And just whenever we Look are sitting around. in these moments and. If we never truly just point out the things that are nice, then we fall into basically cynicism and and yeah. just thinking that all of humanity is is for naught. Um, but if we just focus in on our own life when we're sitting under a tree next to somebody we love and we just recognize that if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Yeah, just next time you're drinking that cup of tea. Mm. <laughs> If this Starbucks isn't nice, <laughs> I don't know what I wasn't is. meaning Starbucks, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> well, I think that is a good spot uh, to end on. Um, again, if you guys want to uh, check out our Patreon page and join the Jensen AV Club, you can do that by going to jensenav.club. That link is also in the show notes and in the description. There's a bunch of different tiers that you could be a part of um, to help uh, us continue to create this art um and like we we like to say to continue to create art that matters instead of art that sells um thank you guys for listening and uh we'll see you next week bye